Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, the producer of Talking Politics. This week's episode is a recording of a talk David gave to the Whitehall Society a few weeks ago about COVID, climate change and the threat to democracy. It was recorded before the latest twists in the never-ending story of the pandemic, but it's an attempt to look beyond this year to try to understand what the long-term lessons might be. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics, in partnership with the London Review of Books. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, It's a sadness not to be able to deliver this lecture in person, but we're all learning to adapt. And indeed, that is the theme that I want to talk about. And in a way, I want to address particularly, I suppose, the Greta Thunberg question, which is what have we learned this year about the ability of democratic societies, particularly, to address a crisis as though it were a crisis, to adapt, to innovate, to reform, and for people as well, not just politicians, to change. So I'm talking about the link between COVID and climate. I'm not trying to make a grand argument in relation to the science. I'm not trying to make a big anthropological argument in relation to what the pandemic tells us about our treatment of the natural world. I'm interested in the basic question about democratic politics and its adaptability, which is how well suited are the systems that we live in, and I'm assuming here we're talking primarily about the world's leading democracies, to meeting these kinds of challenges and can we draw parallels between them? And I think the reason this is an acute question now, and it's not just Greta Thunberg, many people I think this year have wondered whether 2020 has given us a sign, a set of indications about our ability to change. And if we have learned about our ability to change, what does that mean for how we might tackle climate change in the future? And part of the interest of this for me, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, is that I've read things and I've encountered people, I've had conversations in which fairly diametrically opposed lessons have been drawn from this year. So there is, I think, an optimistic story, and I think there is a pessimistic story. And I'm going to take the optimistic argument first. I'm going to try and identify what I think are some of the positive themes that we can take from 2020. And I am going to assume, I'm not going to argue this, that climate change is a very, very serious crisis. And it is one that will, at some point, require both adaptation and innovation, including at the social and political level and the economic level, of course. So there is an optimistic story about the relationship between COVID and climate, and there's also a pessimistic story. And I want to do optimism first, not because I then want to debunk it with pessimism, but because I think it is important to lay these two out separately and then to compare them. So what is the optimistic story that we've learned this year? Well, one is, to put it quite simply, Democratic states, including those like the United Kingdom that are governed by centre-right parties, have shown 
that there is a magic money tree when there needs to be. That is, in the face of a really serious systemic crisis, an emergency, money can be found, and money can be found, among other things, to compensate people for enforced change, individuals, communities, businesses, for fundamental changes in the way they operate and the way they live. The kind of disruption that we so fear can be softened by government's willingness to act, to subsidize, to support, to borrow, to find the money that's needed. And in the face of this kind of action, I think it has become harder to make the case that has sometimes been made, including by centre-right politicians, that we can't afford the kinds of actions that are required or at least demanded by activists in relation to climate change. That argument is harder to make after a year in which we have shown that we can afford it. Now, of course, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the House of Commons yesterday, a Conservative Chancellor, said there is no not in these terms, there is no magic money tree, uh, that what is borrowed has to be repaid. And of course, the you know the pessimistic take is the immediate riposte to what I've just said. On the one hand, it's harder to say that we can't afford it because we've just shown that we can afford things we thought we couldn't afford. And on the other hand, we've just spent the money on this. COVID has used up the magic money tree and the kinds of long-term plans that were laid out yesterday do not leave a lot of room for extra spending. And if extra spending, if extra government investment is needed, maybe we are more, not less constrained. We shall see, I'll come back to that. I think the second possible grounds here for optimism relates not just to the adaptability of politicians, but the adaptability of all of us. You know, I speak for myself and, and other people will take a different view. But as we come to the end of this year, it is striking the extent to which really radical behavioural change has been both adopted and accepted in the sense that things we really didn't think we would be willing to put up with, we have put up with. Changes in how we work, changes, fundamental changes in how we travel and how we commute. Many, most of us have given up air travel. The most optimistic in a way take on COVID were those moments, particularly in the late spring, early summer, where people went outside for the first time and found that the air was cleaner, the grass looked like it was greener, and nature seemed to be flourishing. We have changed in ways that climate change maybe also demands, and we've done it not simply because we've been coerced to do it, because there's also quite a lot of evidence that much of the change was voluntary, that individuals and indeed organisations adapted before governments told them to adapt. It may also be that some of the resistance to coercion has also come sooner than governments would like, but if you remember in the spring when there was talk of herd immunity and of different ways that this might play out, some behavioural scientists warned that about two weeks was the limit of individuals like us, that is citizens of liberal democratic societies, our tolerance for being told to remain in our homes, that lockdown probably had a two to three week shelf life. Well, here we are eight months in, lockdown again. And there is more resistance, no question. There's also quite a lot more political pushback. But I think the overall story is one of surprising levels of compliance, not surprising levels of resistance. So politicians have shown that they can change, and we've shown that we can change. And then the other optimistic story, the much more recent one, is the innovation story. Again, I'm sure 
you know, this is not my field. I'm not by any means an expert in the science here. I'm the opposite of that. But I've spoken to people over the past year just as a concerned citizen, as I'm sure many of you have in the different countries that you are, asking people who, who one hope might know about the prospects for a vaccine, whether one was coming. And there was a lot of scepticism, a lot of doubt that some of the talk of this being done this year was not just premature, it was actually wishful. And yet it turns out that a combination of government investment in the United States, at least 12 billion of federal spending to support vaccine research, strong, very strong market incentives, including the enormous rewards for the people who got there first. And because there is, among other things, absolutely certain government demand for a successful product. So a combination of private and public, state and market, and throwing out conventional cost-benefit analysis and being willing to throw money and people and human hours at the problem has, it seems to this point anyway, shown that we can do things much quicker than we thought and successfully. I mean, we have to wait and see. But certainly in the last month, the last few weeks, the news is good on the capacity, and this is of primarily the world's leading liberal democratic societies, to innovate innovate their way out of a crisis. And if that's true of this, why should it not also be true of climate change? And then two more briefly. I think that this year has also potentially at least removed two barriers that stand in the way of concerted climate action. One very directly political, well, I'll come on to. The other, I think deeper and more structural. So the structural challenge is often seem to me in democratic societies to concerted action on climate change is the increasing generational divide in our politics. There are many divides in our politics. Education is another. But the generation divide is stark. The preferences, the beliefs and the behaviour, including the voting behaviour of older citizens has radically diverged from younger citizens. And climate change is one of the markers of that because in polling evidence, it is quite clear that climate change is a much, much more pressing issue when people are asked what is the thing that you are most worried about for the under 35s relative to the over 65s. And yet democratic politics in the West for quite a while now has been skewed towards the preferences and indeed the voting behaviour of older voters. There are more people over 65 than under 35 in many Western electorates they vote in greater numbers, and their preferences tend to win out. And democratic politics has been skewed against the interests of younger voters for a while. And climate is, in one sense, a victim of that. But this year has potentially, at least, changed the dynamics of generational politics, because the young have also suffered this year. One of the consequences of COVID shutdowns, economic and more straightforwardly social and cultural, is that a burden has been borne by younger voters. And this has been for the sake of the old. It's an it's a accident of this pandemic. It's not, it doesn't mean anything beyond its long-term consequences that it does discriminate against the old. The, the most vulnerable by far to illness and death are those not just aged over 65, but aged over 75. A cost has been borne by the young for the sake of the old. And if there is a recognition of that in democratic politics in a post-COVID environment, when we come out of this, if, I think it's a big if, but if it at least 
raises the possibility of rectifying the generational imbalance, there is something that must be paid back to the young after this year. Now, it could be financial support, it could be all sorts of things, but one thing it might be is action on climate change. And then the final barrier that has been removed is the obvious one, probably the biggest obstacle to concerted international action on climate change over the last four years has been the brute fact that the duly elected president of the United States, Donald Trump, <clears throat> was not the person to take that action. Indeed, he did much to make it much harder. And in less than two months time, and I promise you this is true, he will not be president of the United States. Now, I'm aware that for many people, the, the election a few weeks ago was shocking, not because Trump lost, but because he nearly won. And it was so close that the expectation that the failure of his administration, and it is a failure, and it's not just a relative failure, I think it's an absolute failure, to handle the COVID pandemic would cost him at the ballot box. And the closeness of the result and the fact that some exit polling indicated that the coronavirus was not a priority for many voters, suggested to many people that this was not a COVID election that um, it was so close and Trump got so much support that COVID clearly was not the decisive factor. I actually disagree with that. I take a, a different view. I believe that before February, Donald Trump was heading for re-election. The American economy was sufficiently strong and the polling evidence was that particularly in the swing states that he needed to win, the voters agreed with him many of them, not all of them, of course, but many of them, that they were better off than four years ago, which is one of the strongest indicators of likely electoral outcomes. Other things being equal, Donald Trump was extremely well placed in early 2020 to win a second term. And the fact that he hasn't, I think almost certainly, is a consequence of what happened in between. And what happened in between was the pandemic. And in some of those swing states, there is evidence that the voters who swung against Trump swung against Trump because of a rapid deterioration in their expectations of just not just their economic, but their life prospects. So it could be said that COVID gave us President Biden. And President Biden has said that in his first 100 days, action on climate change will be a priority. So if COVID gave us Biden, and Biden gives us action on climate change, then maybe COVID, far from killing the climate, saved the climate. Maybe. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think there is something to be said for all of those arguments, but I also think there's something to be said against them. So let me just go through the, let's call it the sceptical rather than the pessimistic take. And I'll, as I do it in reverse order, I'll start where I just finished. 
So yes, Donald Trump will soon no longer be president of the United States. But I think it is a big mistake. And I think it's a perpetual hazard of democratic politics that we overinterpret the significance of election results, that much of what matters happens at a deeper or more structural or institutional level. And there are some facts about American democracy that have not changed, notwithstanding Trump's defeat. So we don't yet know whether Biden will or won't have and it, if he does, it will be an absolutely bare majority in the Senate. There are two elections still to come in Georgia in January, which will go a long way to deciding what legislation is possible. It is also true that the consequences of four years of Donald Trump will linger much longer. And this goes way beyond, I think, the breaching of democratic norms. I think Joe Biden can do quite a lot to repair democratic norms. I don't think he's going to be able to do anything about the United States Supreme Court. And Donald Trump, by chance, by accident, not by design, got to nominate three justices. And there is a lot of discussion about how the court might change American politics. And there's a focus particularly on questions like abortion and whether Roe versus Wade might be overturned. That's not for now. I think what is clear is that the Supreme Court is now heavily skewed, thanks to Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Barrett in an anti-regulatory direction, that the one thing that the new justices have in common is opposition to the regulatory administrative state. And that may particularly relate to federal action on climate change. It's possible that the legacy of the Trump years is far greater constraint on executive uh, discretion in this area, never mind the possibility of legislation that doesn't get struck down. And I think the other fact about American politics that is unchanged by this election is that climate change remains part of that zero-sum tit-for-tat partisanship, which goes back well before Trump, goes back at least to the Obama years, and makes climate and concerted action on climate very difficult, because I think both sides still see climate change primarily in terms of what it means for the other side. If they're for action, we're against it. If they're against action, we're for it. But what an executive does, an executive can undo. And if legislation is going to be hard, executive action is intensely vulnerable to this kind of tit-for-tat politics. And nothing about the election, nothing, to my mind, suggests that that has changed. I also think that the other way we overinterpret election results is we take too short-term a view. So it is true, I think it is true, that COVID probably gave us President Biden, it spared us from another term of President Trump. But I think the idea that that signals the long-term direction of the consequences of COVID for democratic politics is very wishful. Because it is just far too soon to say what impact 2020 will have in the medium, never mind the long-term, on democratic outcomes. And we have an example of this. And the example that we have of the difference between the immediate and the medium-term impact of a crisis, a really large systemic crisis, is the consequences of the 2008 financial crisis. So in the short term, the 2008 financial crisis gave us President Obama. I've just finished reading Obama's memoirs of the first few years of his presidency. And in them, he says the moment he knew he was going to be president was just after Lehman Brothers collapsed, when his rival John McCain summoned a group of politicians to the White House for an emergency meeting. And when he was asked for his plan, he had no plan. And at that point, Obama knew he was gonna win. Lehman Brothers collapsed and Obama became president of the United States. He might have done anyway, 
But that sealed the deal. But that was not the medium-term consequence of the financial crisis. The idea that the financial crisis was going to lead to a widespread adoption of Obama-style, pragmatic, mildly progressive, competent politics was an illusion. The medium-term consequences of the financial crisis were Brexit and Trump and Corbyn and Syriza in Greece, left populism, right populism, anger, frustration, resentment at the democratic system, rage in many places, very surprising electoral outcomes. In the short term, the electoral consequence of the financial crisis, the election of Barack Obama, was not that surprising, certainly once he'd won the nomination. But recently, democratic politics has been consistently surprising. Polls have got it wrong time after time. They got that election bang on. They haven't been getting them right since. This is all a medium-term legacy of the disruption of the financial crisis. When it shook out, the winners, the losers, the people who'd got away with it, the people who thought that they were unjustly treated. We cannot judge how COVID will play out in similar terms. Once we are past the emergency and we're into the shakedown, the shakeout of this in economic terms, in social terms, when the winners and the losers become clearer, when the price has to be paid, Democratic politics is, I think, almost certainly going to surprise us again. And I don't think it's by any means certain it's going to surprise us necessarily in a Joe Biden direction. Pragmatic, mildly progressive, one hopes, competent politics. In a UK context, I would just say two words in this respect. Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage has not disappeared from British politics and Nigel Farage has turned the Brexit party into the Reform Party. And something that's worth remembering about Nigel Farage is that he is a lifelong Eurosceptic, but he's also, broadly speaking, a climate sceptic. The Reform Party is an anti-lockdown party, but it also seems to be an anti-cycle lane party. I think it's a pro-motorists party. When I heard Nigel Farage speak in Cambridge, it must be at least a decade ago, uh, where he made his pitch. Uh, the three things that he believed in, uh, in political terms. One was that the UK was about to be swamped by uh, immigration from the new states into the European Union. The second was that democratic politics was a kind of cabal of Oxbridge-educated boys who'd never done a day's work in their life. And the third was that wind farms were a scam against the taxpayer. Well, on the first, the consequences of his first set of beliefs, we know. But I think the second and the third probably still hold for him. And there is still plenty of mileage in those beliefs. We'll have to see. The Conservative government has just announced that it wants to advance its programme for achieving carbon neutrality, not least by getting diesel and petrol cars off the road sooner than might otherwise have been expected. We are four years out from an election. That kind of talk is cheap now. I think in four years' time, politics might look quite different. I also think that the the brute demographic facts have not changed. So yes, I think there absolutely is a case for a, a generational rebalancing. And COVID has really highlighted the imbalance, the different prices that are paid by different generations for the kind of political and economic system that we have. But the demography is unchanged. 
we still live in democratic societies that aren't just aging, but in which older voters tend to decide the outcome of elections. And it is not the case that Joe Biden won because of a groundswell of youth support. Joe Biden won partly because some older voters turned against Donald Trump, but they did not turn against Donald Trump because Joe Biden was the champion of action on climate change. I think there's nothing in the recent US election that suggests a shift towards the kind of radical agenda that's favoured not just by younger voters, but also by some younger politicians, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the, the Green New Deal agenda. There's nothing in that election, I think, that suggests that the American public have endorsed it. The Republicans won seats in the House of Representatives. It wasn't just that Trump did surprisingly well. The Republican Party did surprisingly well. And older voters still decide elections. There is a long way to go. And they may need to be changed to electoral systems to shift that balance. So a lot hangs not on electoral outcomes, but on a sense of justice. And I think a sense of justice in the absence of a shift in electoral politics is not something to rely on. And then let me just say something, and I'm not going to go on at great length here. Let me just say something about what you might call the broader case for optimism, the, the case in favour of adaptability, flexibility on the part of politicians, flexibility, uh, behavioural change on the part of the public, our willingness to sacrifice, to give things up this year, things that we thought we wouldn't give up. We have given up, and some of us are quite happy to have given them up. And there are some things that we have given up that we may never resume doing. We don't know yet. We don't know how fixed this behavioural change is. But some patterns of certainly work might have changed. The way I work might have changed. I don't know if I'm ever going to go back to lecturing to students in poorly lit, poorly ventilated halls. We'll have to see. But it is also the case that this change has been relatively short term. And there is a difference, I think between a crisis like the pandemic and the pressure that it's put on governments all around the world, an immediate crisis, a short-term crisis, a crisis in which the costs of inaction can be measured in days and weeks, not months and years and decades, and a challenge, a crisis, a systemic threat like climate change, which is literally a slow burn crisis. And to draw lessons from one for the other, I think is possibly a category mistake. So it seems to me that the response to the pandemic has more in common with how democratic states and democratic governments respond to war or respond in times of war. And this was cited yesterday in the Commons. The British state has borrowed more money to deal with this crisis than at any time in its history, except in wartime. This is the highest level of peacetime borrowing. This is peace being treated as though we were in a kind of war. And that is not, I think, analogous to climate change. So a lot of the innovation that we've seen, I think, models the pattern of the kind of innovation that comes out of wartime spending and wartime emergency action. One of the features of the response to the pandemic is that a lot of the spending has been extremely wasteful. Money has literally, or if you can literally do this these days, literally been thrown at the problem. 
And as I said, cost-benefit analysis to some extent has gone out of the window because things have to happen quickly. And there is a lot of historical evidence that that kind of behaviour on the part of governments and states is the engine of innovation, that many of the transformative technologies of the world that we live in now, the internet, fracking, the renewables energy revolution, are a product initially of the heavy lifting and vastly wasteful spending of states under conditions of what they think of as wartime stress. The First World War, the Second World War, and the Cold War, particularly in the American military industrial establishment, were the engines of innovation. And this year, to some extent, to some extent, has modelled that. And it raises the question, therefore, of whether climate and the climate change emergency could be treated as though it were a war. Extinction Rebellion on Armistice Day staged a protest at the Cenotaph where a former soldier unfurled a banner which read, honour their sacrifice, climate change means war. And I think there is a sense that were we to treat the climate emergency with the kind of urgency that we do treat, that states, including democratic states, do treat military threats, particularly when those threats are, to use a word I don't particularly like, existential. We do have the capacity, we have the money, we have the political will, we have the willingness of democratic electorates and citizens to change their behaviour. We know that. Democracies have been through worse and they have both adapted and innovated and spent their way out. But this isn't a war, and nor even is the COVID pandemic a war. So it mimics, to some extent, warlike behaviour, but it's not a war. And the kinds of change that we've seen in 2020, I think, are more likely to be transient than permanent for that very reason. This is, relatively speaking, certainly compared to the kind of transformation that comes out of systemic warlike challenges, it's likely to be more superficial. So let me just try and illustrate this in a couple of ways, and then I'll wrap up. So as I mentioned, the United States uh, federal government has invested heavily, 12 billion plus, in supporting vaccine research and innovation. Uh, We were having a conversation a couple of weeks ago about this question with the um, economic historian Adam Tooze. And I was asking this very question, does, does 2020 suggest the adaptability of Western societies for climate, given the relative success in some respects of the adaptation and the innovation in relation to COVID? And he said, if you think about it, $12 billion is nothing. It's a, it's a rounding error in one federal government's departmental accounts. And yet innovation has been achieved. So imagine what could be done by a state that is a national state, a president, an administration, with the political will to spend on the scale, you might call it the warlike scale, that climate requires, just what we could achieve. But the sceptical view is, but we can't do that in the absence of the kind of existential threat that generates this kind of spending if 12 billion is peanuts because covid was a serious threat how bad 
does climate have to get? How warlike does it have to get before we start spending on that scale? And no one, no one who isn't mad can wish for a war to generate the kind of government action that produces the results we need. We have to do it in the absence of war. And then the other thing to say is that the case is often made again by the, the, the positivists, the optimists, that history shows us that governments with a political will can do this outside of wartime because the original New Deal was not a response to war. Roosevelt's New Deal was a response to the Great Depression. And with that kind of political will, and some people have drawn a comparison between Joe Biden and Franklin Roosevelt, and the possibility, at least, that this is another Democratic president who might just have the opportunity to affect structural systemic change with a Green New Deal. If Roosevelt could do it, Biden can do it. But Roosevelt didn't do it. The original New Deal actually ran out of steam by 1937-38. The structural features of American democracy defeated it. The checks, the balances the opposition, the opposition of the Republican Party, the opposition at the state level, the complexity of American political life. Roosevelt achieved a lot in his first 100 days, and Biden may achieve a lot in his first 100 days, but in 100 days, you do not affect structural or systemic change. You do executive things. You, you rescue people, you save people. And Biden, in his first 100 days, though he said climate will be a priority, will be focused on the pandemic because it will still be raging in the United States post-Thanksgiving, post-Christmas. A lot can be done in 100 days, but the thing that turned the New Deal from something that American politics could defeat to something that no administration could overturn was the Second World War. The Second World War turbocharged the New Deal. There is a more pessimistic lesson for advocates of the Green New Deal from Roosevelt's experience, which is that he was defeated by American politics and it was war that changed American society. So to finish, two concluding remarks. We have seen adaptation and innovation this year. We've seen it in Britain, we've seen it in America. We've adapted, our politicians have adapted, science has adapted and innovated. There have been remarkable success stories. The one thing that has not adapted or innovated is the structure of democratic politics. The structure of democratic politics seems to me to be unchanged by the experience of this year. Yes, in the United States, there were many, many more mail-in ballots than traditional because of COVID. That is not structural systemic change. And in the age of the internet, the fact that these were mailed in, I don't think is a model for the future. This has been the year of executive action, of prime ministers, presidents, governors giving news conferences, of following the science until the science becomes politically inconvenient. This has been the year of high politics, of shenanigans in the White House in, in Downing Street. This has been the year of Dominic Cummings and Carrie Simons. You know, many people have commented that in some respects, democratic politics this year has become almost medieval. You know, the, the, the question is, does the prime minister's girlfriend like you or not? That is not democratic innovation. And I have remained fairly convinced for some time now that with all our talk of adaptation and innovation in relation to climate change, without democratic adaptation and innovation, changing the way we do it, being more deliberative, more participatory, more open, more street politics, more civil disobedience, more extinction rebellion, 
I mean, I know many people can't stand Extinction Rebellion, but without, it's still democracy. Street politics is still democracy. Civil disobedience is still democracy. Without more innovation and adaptation at the level of not what politics we do, what we want to happen, but how we do it. Climate still looks to me like a fairly intractable problem for Western democracies. And 2020 has not seen political adaptation. If anything, it has entrenched the sclerotic systems that we have. And then finally, there is that other question about 2020, which is, for many people, Donald Trump was the threat to democracy. And now that that threat has been removed, I've read an article in the New York Times, I think every day, saying, phew, democracy is back. Well, maybe it's back. I never thought Donald Trump was the threat anyway. But 2020 may mark a watershed year in a completely different way, because the pandemic has also shown us, though in some respects we've done remarkable things, the flagship democracies, the United States, Western Europe, have not done well. We've muddled through, but relative to how the Chinese state dealt with the pandemic, leaving aside all questions of where it came from, this year could mark, could mark a watershed year in the history of democracy because of what will be perceived to be a relative failure relative to the kind of autocratic state that is able to take more decisive action. Of course, some other democracies have done well, New Zealand, South Korea, but the flagship democracies and the the flagship democracy, the United States of America, has not done well. I have no idea in the medium term what lessons will be drawn about the relative strengths and weaknesses of Western liberal democracy versus Chinese autocratic state capitalism. But it is at least possible that the lesson of this year will be that COVID showed certain kinds of actions are beyond liberal democracies and are not beyond other kinds of political systems. And that lesson conceivably could apply to climate change. It could. I'm absolutely not saying that it necessarily does. And I think that there are huge medium-term challenges for the Chinese political system as well. But it is at least a possibility. And if that is a possibility, we have to be open to the thought that the consolation that we're taking from this year by the muddled innovation, and when I say muddled innovation, I mean it's not been systemic. It seems just about, just about that we're going to get away with it. That looks relatively inadequate for the kinds of threats that the 21st century is going to pose. So I don't think that COVID killed action on climate change in the sense that COVID has colonized our attention. We spent all the money. We've got no money less. It's going to be another few years before we can even get back to this issue. It's all going to be about return to growth, recovery, and so on. I don't think there was any choice. I mean, I certainly am not one of those people who thinks that any elected politician in a year like this year could say, Climate change is a more significant priority than the pandemic. The pandemic was and remains the number one priority for any elected politician who wishes to survive another day in office. That's not the issue. The issue for me is that it's too easy and possibly too tempting to draw false analogies from the success stories. There have been success stories of democratic responses to COVID, the adaptability the innovation, the surprising things that we have been willing to do, and to make the wrong comparison. I think it's more likely 
that COVID will do long-term damage to the prospects of action on climate change if we think that COVID is the model, because there are lots of political and historical reasons for thinking that it is not the model for action on climate change. We have one more extra episode for you before we come back in our regular slot to talk about everything that's happening in 2021, from Biden to Brexit. It's another recent talk by David, this time on how to fix British democracy, and it'll be available on the weekend. In the meantime, have a happy new year, if you can. We've been talking politics. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.